Good morning. So, um, I need y'all's help. I sat down at the beginning of the service and my notes were gone and Keith had stolen them <laughs> just to give me a mild, like flutter of the heart, also heart attack, some people would call this. If you ever notice this happening again, I think chastising, mocking, threatening would all be appropriate. All right, so now that I feel like I got him back by publicly shaming him, <laughs> I feel the world is fair and we can move on. Okay, if you'll turn in your Bible, uh, Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Uh, our, this is the second week of our fall sermon series where we're going through the letter to the Philippians. And if you weren't with us last week, you may find it helpful to jump online on our website or our podcast and listen to the very first message in this series. So just to give a little bit of context, this part of the Bible, it can be confusing if you're new to the Bible. Uh, oftentimes people refer to parts of the Bible as books, books of the Bible, but some of those books are sermons, some of those books are history, some of those books are poems. This particular book is a letter. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, while he was in jail. I think he was in jail in Ephesus, and I think this was probably 55 AD. He's in jail in Ephesus. It might be 61 AD, and he's in Rome. There's a, it's hard to tell for sure. And he's writing this letter from prison in one city, a hundred or so miles away, if it's Ephesus, to the city in, of Philippi, where there are Christians, where there's a church that he helped start. And so Paul is writing this letter to his friends that live in this city, and he's in prison, and they've sent him money, because at this time, if you're in jail, it's not like prison or jail for us. They used it entirely differently. Jail was where they put you while they decided if they were going to put you on trial or just forget about you and let you die. Um, if you did go to trial, then they would either beat you, banish you, fine you, or kill you. So it was just this holding place. And, and um, the government didn't feed people who were in jail, didn't give them water. You were on your own. And so the only way you could survive this is if you had friends who were willing to risk their lives by going to a jailer who's in charge of you, who makes his money by grafting off of people who are coming trying to help the jail, the inmates. If you would hazard your life to go to him and bring money or food for, for this person that's imprisoned. So this church in Philippi heard that Paul was in jail. They loved him. They knew that he would only live if people helped him. And so they sent a whole bunch of help. And the person who delivered it was named Epaphroditus. He got super sick and he almost died. So now the people in Philippi, they're worried about Paul. They're worried about Epaphroditus. They wonder if their money actually made it there or it got stolen at the border kind of thing. So Paul writes this letter back to them to say thanks for the money. Thanks for the partnership in the gospel. And um, he writes it the way he normally writes letters, the way that letters were normally written in that world at the time. You start out by identifying the writer. So verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. That's who's writing the letter. 
Typical Roman letter writing at the time, Greco-Roman letter writing, you then identify who you're writing to. So that's the rest of verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. And then you give a greeting, which is verse 2, and then there's some kind of prayer. If, if you're a Christian, there's a prayer to the god Christians worship. If you worship Zeus or some of these other gods, then there'd be kind of a prayer or a blessing from your religious perspective. And then, so all of that's normal. We looked at that last week. It was just kind of a typical formula for the beginning of a letter. In verse 12, our section for this week, Paul changes things up. He does something weird. He does something, he's written 13 of the letters in the New Testament. He does something here that he doesn't normally do. He gives a personal update. You know, like these like uh, Christmas things people send out where Johnny is playing baseball for the Houston Rockets, or yeah, obviously. Some people know how ignorant that statement was. Um, in Paul's letter, the personal update always came at the end of the letter. You can see this in Romans, for example. Of his 13 letters, only twice does he do the personal update first. And so if you're used to Paul's letter writing, when I was a child, my mom wrote me letters. I, um, anytime I'd go somewhere, she'd write letters to me, and I still have a number of them, and I can tell my mom's handwriting. When I read them, I can hear her voice, you know? And she wrote in a certain way. It, look, when you read this letter, if you know Paul and you know his letters, you're like, What's going on here? It'd be like my mom doing something weird, and I'd be like, who's messing with mama? Like, this isn't how she normally writes, right? All right, so in the beginning of this letter, he front loads the personal update. That's one weird thing. The second weird thing is it's long. It's the longest personal update of any of his letters. It goes from chapter, from verse 12 all the way to verse 26. Those two things are odd. Now, if my mom wrote me a letter in a very odd way, I would ask the question, why? Why is she doing this so different? Why does Paul bring his update to the front of the letter, his personal update? And why does he belabor it? Why does he go on so long? Let's look. Verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So what has happened to me is talking about being in jail. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now that opening phrase, I want you to know brothers. That word brothers in Greek, the original language, Delphoi. This is an affectionate way of referring to a group of people that have become so close, they're like adopted family. We have some versions of this, like in some parts of um, the South, if, if my, my good friend is really close to my kids, my kids might call him uncle, right, as a way of kind of indicating this is different than the, all right. So um, if Paul was writing today, he would have done it a little different because at that time, that word, Adelphi, it, it, it actually means both sexes. It, it means people of both sexes who are affectionately my peers they're like family. One of my favorite, really modern translations translates this verse. I think it's very good. My dear family. This morning I got a text from a good friend of mine. He went to London this weekend, and he knows I have this super early schedule on Sundays. 
And he texts me very early because he's already up, right? He's six hours in advance, jet lagged and all that. And he texts, and, and the text started out, my dear friend. And immediately when I read it, I just, I knew he loves me, right? Like, that's what Paul is doing here. My dear family, I want you to know that the things I've been through have actually helped me help the gospel on its way. Now, that's the answer to why Paul is doing his personal update up front. It's because he loves the Philippians and he knows they love him. And he knows that he's in a life or death situation. He knows that his, his imprisonment is likely going to end in his execution. So can you imagine a letter that didn't acknowledge that on the front end? Like, yeah, 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 we'll get to my death in a minute. <laughs> Let me first tell you about this piece of business or that, right? No, Paul knew that no matter what, he had to bring this forward. And they also knew in Philippi that it's Christianity that got him in trouble. And the Philippian Christians are in trouble. Because the same turn of government that is clamping down and resulted in Paul being sent to jail, possibly executed because of his faith, they're experiencing that too. They're a minority. There's only about 30 or so of them. And they're being persecuted for the faith. So the reason Paul switches things around is because of how serious the situation is for him and for them. So listen to these words. My dear family, I want you to know that the things I've been through have actually, now you can imagine a lot of things there, been so hard, right? I'm so scared. They've been so discouraging. Right? He could say any of that, right? I'm so sad. I'm going to miss you so much have actually, dramatic pause, served to advance the gospel. That's verse 12. And then in verses 13 and 14, he names two ways in particular that the gospel has advanced as a result of his dangerous situation, his imprisonment. In verse 13, he names one way. In verse 14, he names another way. In verse 13, he writes, again, I'm going to use a modern translation He says, you see, everybody in the imperial guard and all the rest for that matter have heard that I am here chained up because of the Messiah, the king. So he's saying, hey, I'm in a dangerous spot, but the gospel is not. The gospel's not endangered. In fact, the gospel is gaining ground. Now, when Paul uses the word gospel here, the best way I know to help you understand what he means is, They had not yet invented the word Christianity. Just insert the word Christianity. He's using it in the way we use the word Christianity. Christianity is gaining ground. When he uses the word gospel in this context, he means the whole kettle of fish. Talking about Jesus, the son of God, that when he lived, he did these amazing miracles. He brought God's good and kind and compassionate kingdom to the poor, to the downtrodden, to the dispossessed, the marginalized. He, he brought forgiveness. And, 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 and then 
he died on the cross for our sins and he rose from the dead and he ascended in heaven. And when we tell that story, the power of God moves forward. People find themselves being attracted to the echo of a thing that's familiar, that resonates deep in their soul as the ultimate truth. And they respond in faith and they join in with this and they discover they're starting to forgive people and they're starting to learn the ways of gentleness and patience and kindness and love and all of those fruits of the spirit. And when that happens, these Jesus-shaped communities are popping up, churches are popping up. So when he says the gospel is advancing, he's talking about that whole thing. He's talking about the announcement that Jesus is king and the behavior that results from it and the Jesus-shaped communities that spring up around it. That's the gospel, the proclamation, the behavior, the birth of the church. He says, because of my imprisonment, that's happening. And he says, everybody in the imperial guard is hearing about this. (laughs) It's interesting. Can you imagine being chained to Paul? See, here's the deal. Paul says that he is, in Greek, it literally says chained in Messiah. This idea that he's in chains both in Jesus and for Jesus. Part of what's going on here is that in that day when there was a high security threat prisoner, the normal way it was taken care of is a group of four elite soldiers called the Imperial Guard. This is sort of like a cross between our special forces and our secret service, okay? That, if you combine that into one branch of the military in Rome, that, that was one branch, and it was called um, the Imperial Guard. And the way they would do this is they would give four of them to a prisoner of high, of high risk, and one at a time would be chained to him for four hours at a time. So, can you imagine Paul, right? He's like, who's next? All right, here's... And they thought that that he was being chained to them, but really, they were being chained to him. And here's Paul. He's yapping away about Jesus. Bet you wonder why I'm here, don't you? I'm so glad you asked. Well, let me tell you why I'm, I'm chained up here. And so then he explains to them. And then right about the time the conversation gets good and lively, that dude leaves. Or maybe he's ticked off. Or maybe he's happy, I don't know. And the next guy comes up. He, hey, do you wonder why I'm here? And so he says, look, it's just flushing its way through the whole Imperial Guard. And they're learning about it, which is an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing that the gospel is getting told to the most elite troops who find themselves in the most elite circumstances. The second way that the gospel is moving forward is verse 14, my imprisonment has given new confidence to most of the Lord's people. They are now much more prepared to speak the word boldly and fearlessly. Okay, so think about this. He's in jail in Ephesus, I think, or maybe Rome. And where he's in jail, he's in jail because of Christianity, because of the gospel. Now, there could be several reasons in particular that landed him in jail. Sometimes Paul was thrown into jail because he was encouraging people to worship a different God than the legally sanctioned gods in the Roman Empire. He was saying worship King Jesus. In fact, he said, call Jesus Curios, which is what you were required to call Caesar. So he was saying, stop worshiping Caesar, start worshiping Jesus. 
Sometimes that landed him in jail. Other times he landed in jail because Christianity shattered ethnic segregation and, and it integrated. The Roman Empire was profoundly segregated. And in the church, slaves and their masters ate at the same table. And ultimately, this led to the downfall of slavery. The rich and the poor ate in the same place. Different ethnicities came together and called each other brother and sister. And this would be like starting a church in the south below the south. Deep rural Florida in the 50s, right in the midst of Jim Crow, and publicly, significantly integrating the church, and white families and black families intermarrying. Okay, so this was happening, and sometimes because Paul was leading integration in a way that challenged the whole system, he was landed in jail. Other times, he landed in jail because Christianity disrupted the economic order. There were towns he went into where the church just said, hey, the way economics is happening in this community, in this empire, really disenfranchises groups. And so they started kind of an alternative economic approach, and it drove people crazy because some people ran out of money because Christians stopped participating in the economic way of things, and business leaders sometimes rose up and mobbed up and Paul ends up in jail. Other times it was politics. Christianity is very political. It's very directly, overtly political. And so Christianity provoked these flashpoints around these issues that aren't big issues anymore. But just try to imagine a time when religious issues were flashpoints or ethnic issues or economic issues. Or I'm, I'm being... Silly, right? Or polit politics doesn't divide people. Wouldn't it be nice if the gospel was seen in that way today? See, I think today the gospel is often seen as either cozying up to the status quo, the churches, or really hypocritical and corrupt. So in this city, he's in jail, and he's in jail for one of the reasons that Christianity really has challenged situations. And the people in Philippi see that, and the people in the town where he is, Ephesus, I think, they see that. Does that cause them to get scared? What happens if I get arrested because of this sermon? What happens if all the pastors of Harrisonburg get arrested and are facing execution. You can see how that would <laughs> push people, right, into caves, right? Paul says, actually, that's not happening at all. Paul says, you know what's happening? People are seeing me, the leader of the church here, persecuted for the faith and still being bold, and they're growing more bold. As they're reflecting on Paul's being persecuted, Jesus was also executed. The church is getting more bold in the face of its suffering. 
So what Paul does is he writes to the Philippians and he says, look, the gospel's gaining ground in two ways. One, I'm getting to tell the elite imperial guard about Jesus. And two, lots of people are talking about Jesus now because of this. They're saying, hey, our friend's in jail. You know why he's in jail, right? Yeah, I heard this. No, that's not right. He was talking about Jesus. And so Jesus is getting talked about. Now, in verses 15 through 18, he says there's actually two groups of people that are talking a lot about Jesus right now. Some of them do it because they love me and they love Jesus and they love this town and they want everybody to know about Jesus. They do it out of love. But then there's this other group. They're glad I'm in jail and they want me to suffer and they're stirring up trouble by keeping the conversation alive. And they're trying to make life worse for me. I love the way Paul responds to this. Verse 17. They are not acting from pure motives. They imagine that they will make more trouble for me in my captivity So what? Only this. The king is being announced. Whether people mean it or not, I'm happy to celebrate that. In that, I rejoice. Paul is in jail for Jesus. And if Jesus is being talked about because Paul is in jail, then Paul is rejoicing. Paul's imprisonment is not a frustration for the advance of God's kingdom. Paul's deadly, dangerous jail situation is the way the kingdom is advancing. Now, in the time I have left, I would like for us to reflect on how this can impact our own lives today. And the first thing is this. We, the key to this passage, verses 12 through 18, and really through 26, I'll do that next week. The key to this passage is to realize Paul is doing the very thing he prayed for the Philippians to do in verses 9 through 11. So go back to verses 9 through 11. Look what Paul prayed. First, in verse 9, he prayed that the the Christians in Philippi will grow in love in such a way that they see the world as it truly is. Verse 9, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Paul says the focus of my prayer for you Christians in Philippi, is that you'll grow in love because love leads to knowledge. Now, I talked about this last week. Only love knows. Right? When I was a little boy, my mom loved piano. My mom helped me to take piano um, for three years with no discussion of not taking it until the three-year jail sentence was up. And because I felt like it was a jail sentence, I didn't learn piano. Because it takes love to learn, to really learn. You know this about friends, right? If somebody tries to explain you to you and they haven't taken the time to know you, they don't know you. So Paul says it takes love to know a thing. So he's praying for the the Christians in Philippi that their love would grow so that they could develop the ability to see what's really going on. Love takes the time to pay attention. So love can lead us to understand things that are hard to understand. Love will help us in this election cycle. Love will help Democrats listen to Republicans. Love will help never-Trumpers listen to people who think Trump is good for the country. Love leads 
to knowledge. Only love leads to knowledge. Second, Paul prayed that this wise love will result in knowing the difference between real problems and surface issues. This is verse 10. So that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That phrase, approve what is excellent. It literally, it means distinguish things that differ. This is about being able to look beyond the surface to determine the difference between real problems and merely surface ones. This is exactly what Paul is doing as he describes his imprisonment. The surface of it is that he's in jail and this is dangerous, but he's looking down below that and seeing a thing that you couldn't see if your deepest love wasn't for God and his kingdom and your neighbor. And third, Paul prays that the Philippians, as a result of this love that leads to true knowledge and discernment, that leads to the ability to know the difference between the real problem and the surface one, he says this will result in you being filled with the fruit of right living. Paul believed right thinking leads to right living. Now look, I'm very glad we live in a culture that's attuned to feelings because I'm a feeling guy, right? I majored in English literature, not that really mean other discipline that doesn't care about your feelings, science. And, I'm, and I focused on poetry in my bachelor's degree, which is a lot about feelings, right? I'm glad we live in a culture that takes feelings seriously. We need an adjustment on that. But it's right thinking that leads to right living. There is such a thing as something is real and something's not real, something's true and something's not true, and it's love that leads to the deeper insights that leads to the capacity to live right. And as we fill up on that love that overflows into seeing the world as it truly is and knowing the difference between the real problems and the surface issues, we will learn how to live right. That's exactly what Paul is demonstrating. He's living right in jail. In jail, he's living with joy. In jail, he's seeing the kingdom advancing. Can you see how his prayer for the Philippians in verses 9 through 11, he not only uses the excuse, I need you to let you know I'm okay. He's not okay. He might be about to die. We're going to see that next week. But he uses that not only to update them on his status, but to teach them how to have the mind of Christ, which we'll see in a couple of weeks, is the thing. Now, Do you see how this love leading to knowledge, leading to real insight and understanding, do you see how it enables Paul to rejoice? Can you see that we need to pray this for one another over the next couple of years if our church is going to actually survive this next election? The way not to survive the next election is to become an all-Republican church or an all-Democrat church or everybody to stuff it. All of those are bad options. We need the Republicans to come out of the closet. And we need the Democrats to come out of the closet. But to come out leading with love, right? So that we can listen and we can together discern the truth. Because the whole point of the letter to the Philippians is that the church must be a public, visible picture of the kingdom. That our public behavior must match up to the gospel of the kingdom. We have a chance. Let's not be afraid of this election cycle. Let's, Let's realize that we have a chance to embody in the middle of Harrisonburg Democrats and Republicans who get along. 
who love each other, who respect each other. Can you imagine what beautiful display that will be in our city of what a kingdom can look like? That it's not a homogenous place. That those of us, and look, those of you who are not Christians or you've left the church, I am so glad you're here. And help hold us accountable that we as Christians must act and love and live in ways that faithfully represent King Jesus. And to do that, we need to grow in love. So that like Paul, we can see things. Now, I asked you last week, as a church, let's go to prom in Philippi together. P-R-O-M. Pray, read, outline, memorize. Over the course of the fall, let's pray some of these amazing prayers every day for ourselves and each other. Let's pray verses 9 through 11 so vigorously for our church and the church in Harrisonburg that, that the election cycle we're about to go through that this comes out to bear. Let's pray for one another. We are, it is hard to be a Christian today, not just politically, but in all sorts of ways. And if we're going to truly represent the king in the city, we need the love that leads to the knowledge, that leads to the wisdom, that leads to the right living. We need to pray this for each other. A second way I think we should reflect on this playing out in our lives is this business about being courageous with the gospel. Pray that we, in the face of it getting more and more difficult to be a Christian, Christians are becoming, they're going to be the minority for the first time in American history within the next decade or two. Some research just came out over the past 25 years, 40 million people have left the Christian church. That's more people than converted into the faith in the first great awakening, the second great awakening, or all of Billy Graham's evangelistic crusades combined. More have left the church than came into the church in those great movements. Now, why have so many people left the church? Why have so many children of the church abandoning the faith? Well, it's a very complicated story, but part of it is that the church has not always faithfully modeled in public the gospel it believes in. Its public behavior is not always matched. We know the stories, right? They're out there. The stories of hypocrisy. The stories of the church who in the name of a crucified savior participated in racial inequities, participated in gender inequities, participated in power. There's just so many stories, they're easy to tell. We have to, in the face of our growing minority status, in the face of our not only growing minority status, but we are beginning to be viewed as immoral. Our views of sexual ethics are viewed as immoral and unkind and unjust. And in the face of that, can we, like the people Paul is talking about, respond to the pressure with increasing confidence and boldness and winsomeness. Can we talk about Jesus more? Tell the story of Jesus more? Do you need to pray, if you're a Christian, that God will give you the strength to speak the word without fear? Not rudely, 
but in a more relationally winsome, accessible, respectful, and humble way, loving in our posture, and at the same time clear and even brave and letting the people around us know about the hope that is within us because of Jesus Christ. Let's become more and more a church where people who don't believe like we do can be safe among us, can know that we care. Okay, I'll close with this. This fall, I'm begging you, please, as we continue through Philippians, prom, please, every day, pray verses 9 through 11. And when I say every day, look, I'm not a legalist. Like, I think I probably prayed this prayer for our church four or five days last week. So, like, you grade yourself like they grade batters, right? If you, if you hit the ball, if you hit 500, you know, that's half. If you get a 50 on the test, you get to the Hall of Fame, all right? So if you can just do half of the, the days, then you're a Hall of Famer in this church, all right? So pray. Number two, read every day. Again, like a baseball player, half the day. Every day, read the book of the letter of Philippians through in one sitting. The average speed of the average reader could read Philippians in 12 minutes. Some this week, I read it in like eight minutes. I timed myself a couple of times. Just read it through and do it over and over and over. Or listen to it even better when you're doing the dishes or yelling at the dog. Number three, outline it. Grapple with it. Try to figure out how all the bits and pieces relate to each other. It'll set you up so that when we come in here together, you'll get more out of this next week. The Lord willing, I'm going to preach through the rest of verse 18 and 26. Get a little ahead and see how it, grapple with it yourself. And number four, memorize. Last week, we saw three good verses to memorize, verses 9 through 11. This week, what if you memorized the, the beginning of verse 18? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. What if that got deep down into your memory? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that maybe help you move on for the king and his kingdom? Let's pray.